Hey everybody, it's Julian, and welcome to Let's Be Real. Before we jump into the interview today, I want to take a moment to address what is a burgeoning mental health crisis in the medical profession in the U.S. Physicians lead the country by profession in suicide rate, nearly one every single day. Before I begin this discussion, let me say that discussion of self-harm will be discussed in today's episode. During the COVID pandemic, the burnout has only accelerated as not only doctors, but nurses, medical staff, and anyone else tangentially related to the medical system has felt the strain of resources, mental health, and fulfillment in life. If you know someone out there in the medical system, do your best to support them in any way that you can. Today I'll be talking to my good friend Simran Sandhu, a current fourth-year medical student at UC Davis. I hope you enjoy it as always. Hey everybody, I have Sim here. Sim is currently a fourth-year medical student at UC Davis who's looking to pursue internal medicine. Prior to attending medical school, he was a stellar student at UC San Diego, where he studied biochemistry and cellular biology, and a student at Cal Poly before that. Outside of his academic world, he's an avid gamer, most recently reigniting his passion for World of Warcraft. <laughs> Sim, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me, Julian. I really appreciate it. So, Sim, I want to begin earlier on in your life. You know, you and I have been close friends for a long time. A long time. Since sixth grade, if we're being very specific. This is more than a decade. And over the years, I've seen your academic rise. From someone who struggled in school to get passing grades, to eventually setting the curves in your OCHEM classes at UCSD, and now excelling in medical school. I want to understand what changed in your life that prompted your academic success when you previously struggled. I, I imagine most people would agree with this, but the, but the transition from high school to college is pretty pronounced. And so, uh, coming from an immigrant family, I'm, I'm first generation, where my parents put such a huge emphasis on academics, and where every time I would come home from school, they were like, oh, go study, go do your homework. I felt it was almost reflexive, as it might be for a lot of people, it's, oh, that's the last thing I want to do. I'm going to want to go hang out. I want to be with my friends. I don't want to study. And so, when transitioning to college, and getting that freedom where no one was going to tell me to wake up at this time, no one was going to go tell me to eat food at this time, or go do this at X time, it made way for me to discover, like, oh, learning is actually kind of fun. Learning is just trying to understand the world around us. And that was something that had never occurred to me in high school. So that's so Sim, most people I feel like have the opposite experience, or many kids do at least, where they go to college... And they have this newfound sense of freedom precisely because they're alone and their parents are no longer holding them accountable. Why do you think that you went in the direction that I think most people would prefer, which is one of productivity? Why did you not stray in the more common direction, I would argue, which was freedom abound and let me kind of learn the hard way about skirting responsibilities academically? I guess because I sort of already done that in high school, right? I, I wasn't like the most stellar student by any means. And so I had enough freedom. And I never understood the point of school. Like, oh, wow, I have to wake up every day at 6.30. Like, sometimes I'm pushing at 7, but usually 6.30, to go to school and sit there for, whatever, eight, nine hours a day, come home and do homework, try to play sports and all that. It, it, it felt very sort of uh, robotic and structured, whereas college all of a sudden felt very free and liberating. And so, you know, it was cool to go to, like, parties and, you know, meet, hang out with your friends, but... For the first time, I had intellectual curiosity, which I guess I apparently just didn't have in high school. What advice would you give for folks who are struggling to find that balance then of achieving that intellectual curiosity, but who keep catching themselves 
doing maybe what you did in high school, which was not taking academics as seriously or prioritizing other things when they really want to be prioritizing their, their academics, be it in undergrad or, or graduate school. And I, maybe this sounds oversimplistic, but you have to find what you thoroughly enjoy. Um, because you're, if you're going to be sacrificing having fun for it, you must also on some level like what you're sacrificing for. If you're just doing it out of, you know, just force or whatever, it's going to one day come, come in, excuse my language, come bite you in the ass because it's, it's not going to be pleasant. Because um, you're going to feel like you, you regretted not doing all these experiences or going out or having fun and so forth. And so when it came to college, like I thoroughly enjoyed like the, the organic chemistry classes, the biochemistry classes I was taking to enough the point where I, I would usually thank my professors at the end of every midterm or final. I would I'd turn in and it's like, thank you. That was a decent time. Because I was being pushed intellectually in a way I wasn't previously, and I found that fun. And that's the key distinction. Is and I would say this very broadly. Everyone should pursue something they find at least semi-amusing. Because when you do something out of amusement, it never feels like work. Very wise words and very apt because the next thing I want to talk to you about is the practice of medicine, hmm? which is what you're doing now. It is what soon to be you will be doing for your day-to-day job and you know medicine is this elusive field you're the healers of our world the fighters on the front lines of the pandemic the saviors of many at the same time we're nearly two years into covid when the entire medical system has been strained beyond belief both resources wise and mental health wise how have you seen the looks of your colleagues' faces and the spirit of the medical system and just the mood change over the course of the pandemic? Before I hop in that question, one point of clarification, if you don't mind. When you say elusive, in, in which regard do you mean? I mean, for most people, we view medicine, and I can say this as somebody in law, in another, I would argue, elusive field, it's closed off for most of the public because you, you have the graduate school barriers, you have the secret nature of the languages we speak. Absolutely. Yeah. And so for most people, they don't have a lot of insight. And that's what I meant by lose it. That makes a lot of sense. I'm not going to lie. The, the last two years have been difficult. And so I'm coming from the medical student perspective. And so it, it was different for us because they wanted to protect the students as much as they could from COVID. But watching the residents and, and the, the, the attendings, the attendings are the senior doctors go, go through this. Um, you know, you can ask anyone. It was basically like, you know, getting ready to go to war. Like, the, they were just holding down the hospitals. Residents were essentially holding down the hospitals, seeing the patients in the ICU. It was essentially an entire year of training for these individuals was spent dealing with COVID. Um, and same with the attendings. They, they felt that for an entire year that they had to push themselves to the brink to deal with this influx of just disease coming into the hospital. And how that affected them, you know, psychologically, you know, this, this, it was very varied where I feel like I see so many of my colleagues now completely burnt out and tired and not kind of really up for anything. And another spectrum of it is I, I see so many people so excited, like, oh, we're finally done with this. I can pursue what I'm actually passionate about. And so there is this kind of a dichotomy, at least from my perspective. I mean, I was going to ask how... How are you all managing and coping on a broad level with with mental health? Because I can only imagine, as someone who had a relatively cushy job, I shouldn't say relatively, very cushy job working at home in my pajamas every day, not being faced with the threat of COVID facing me every single day at work and seeing my colleagues burnt out beyond despair. 
I mean, have there has there been any sort of discussion of this in the medical field, or or is it a hospital by hospital thing about just working through this burnout and managing it? Because at the end of the day, burnout is something that I think you as an organization need to manage. And I worry for the f- the people in our medical system. So this is a really hot topic within the, the entire medical field because you're absolutely correct. Um, I, I think a, a lot of times that uh, physicians are thought, or per, any any medical provider is thought as more than a human, right? That you're you're supposed to be beyond a like a human being, and uh, you must take care of those who are sick or ill, which is something. I think anyone in this field would do reflexively, but it's been pushed to such a point where a lot of people, I, I do not think, are are faring well mentally anymore. And in, in terms of, especially in the the start of the pandemic, where you know doctors and nurses and, and techs and so forth were willing to risk their lives to save patient lives. But there's a great quote: "Who takes care of the person, taking care of everybody else." Well, which. I was actually just going to ask you, I mean, how, first of all, who is taking care of the people who are taking care of everybody else? My first question, the second would be, how can we, myself as a citizen, so to speak, help and do my part in supporting you and the rest of the medical system to the extent I can? And so, again, this is a very hot topic as well. Um, I don't think there are enough mental health resources in medicine. Um, Medicine is... uh, for better or for worse, I would say, regrettably, um, is based in tradition. If you think about the word, right, like, so you go from being an undergraduate student to a medical student to becoming a resident, to becoming an attending. What is a resident? A resident was someone who would literally live in the hospital. They were a resident of the hospital. Um, It's only in the new age that we've limited working hours to, what, 70 hours a week, before that, there was no limitation. You could have 36-hour shifts. You could have 48-hour shifts. And the whole idea, this is, this is all for the, the sake of learning how to treat patients most optimally. And so there's now a new wave of trying to promote mental health and, and you know, give uh, individuals the freedom and capacities to, to take time off, to work on themselves, and have time with their family and so forth. But it's relatively new. It, my favorite word is neophyte. It's a neophyte in the mm-hmm. in, in the scope of medicine. It it's it is there. It's growing, but it's in the very early stages of it of promoting mental health. And and a lot of new programs are addressing. Sorry, not a lot of programs are addressing this kind of new idea. Addressing in the way of trying to really advocate for resident health, attending mental health, and so forth. And how have you been handling the pandemic personally? Um, as a medical student, you know, it, it, it was very interesting. Uh, it, I felt when it first came on, no academic institution really knew how to handle it or what the next appropriate moves were going to be. And so as a student, you kind of just, you, you do what you're told. You sway in that direction. And then as things, as cases would rise or drop or rise or drop, I would say my UC Davis was very proactive in protecting their students, making sure that they wanted to give us the best clinical training possible but not wanting to endanger our lives and so forth. And so as a student, I would say I was impacted in the way that I didn't get to see as many patients or as much patient care time as I would have liked, but I never felt sort of uh, like I was being put in an uncomfortable situation from a health standpoint. And it, I, I think that's the main thing, is trying to really like find the middle ground between those two things. I'm sure it was an incredibly delicate situation to handle because 
they don't want to sacrifice your education necessarily because you're the next generation of physicians too. So there's a vested interest in them having you on the front lines, even if there's a direct conflict with your your safety. Absolutely, and, and it's a very difficult place to be put in. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I I couldn't like yeah, absolutely. So I want to bring things to a lighter note, moving past medicine. Sim, in middle and high school, you were, for lack of a better word, on the dorkier side. <laughs> Wearing swim trunks as regular shorts. Board shorts. Board shorts, sir. Being a gamer, okay. an AP student, you get the picture. I was not a good AP student. And for those listening, I promise I was 10 times nerdier than Sim. Julian's our valedictorian. He's being humble. But in high school, you... <laughs> But in high school, you committed to changing your reputation, becoming popular, as you put it. It was not just a mindset or a goal, but it was the lived experience that you had in your high school years. And you executed on it successfully, rising by senior year to be elected as the public relations chair, which is in some ways the most coveted position in student government. So first, let's start with the basics. How did you do it? So I'm going to answer two. How and why? So for the why aspect... It comes down to, I, I felt so we we grew up in an upper predominantly uh, white middle class community, and being an Indian Punjabi foreigner, um, you don't really fit in anywhere. You're you're kind of out of place because there's you know there's just a lot of Caucasian individuals, and so that was a, a huge aspect of it. Just kind of always feeling out of place, and what it came down to is when we started freshman year. I saw these uh, two individuals, um, Keon and G, who were, one was Persian, one was Punjabi, and they were well-liked, well-regarded, thought positive within this Caucasian community. And all of a sudden, that served as like a, a beacon of inspiration, like, wait, all Indians don't have to be nerdy in this community? Like, some of them can be cool and like well-liked and hang out with the cool kids? And so I went to Yahoo Answers. And I started looking up how to become popular. <laughs> and what I discovered was just being very positive, uh, you know, being conversational would work to my advantage. And so that's what I did. I started becoming very positive. I started working on the way I dressed, the the, the way I acted. Keon, uh, one of the individuals I looked up to, took me kind of under his wing and helped me sort of re redefine my personality not that each it was changed anyway just it was more refined in in a way that fit in or that was acceptable rather than you know like i, I still play world of warcraft i still do guild wars and all this stuff but i presented in such a way like yeah this is who i am with enough confidence that i never have to question anymore so that level of confidence i would argue is what led to the biggest point of change well, that's what I was going to ask is because at the beginning, it sounded almost like you were engineering popularity. But as you continued speaking, it sounded more like you weren't engineering anything other than a, a version of yourself that was always there. You were just bringing it to the fore. Correct. And what you were saying brings it to the fore is that sense of confidence. Is that correct? So that's what I mean by refining, right? It, it, it's what it was at the, the baseline level. But I, what I didn't quite understand, uh, naivety, ignorance, whatever word you want to use, is that that was sort of what would work to the advantage, right? And have these skills that you learn, I mean, all of these sound like very practically helpful skills, being positive, being a conversationalist, especially, have you found that your commitment to this goal that you had in your earlier years has paid off in undergrad or beyond in your career in general? 
I think it directly relates to my capacity to practice medicine, right? Um, I, wow. I think I, I think being able to interact with patients from any spectrum of life, like if I want to get real, very, very real, I had a patient recently call me a uh, shell of a human being. And, you know, my, my response was like, you know, I, I really appreciate you being so honest with that. I, I don't know quite what you mean, but I'm still here for you. I mean, did it give you thick skin? This confidence, it sounds like in some ways the confidence gave you thicker skin. It, it gave me a, a, a what is what is confidence? Confidence, self assurance in yourself, right? Yeah, I would agree. And, and so it, I, I guess a thicker skin is another way to phrase it. But I, I I no longer waver too much in my spirit in terms of okay, I, I have a pretty good understanding of who and what I am, and I I, I sort of stink. I, I cling to that rather than even stick to it. I cling to it. Um, and so so much not many things really affect me in that regard. So okay. You, you have, in many ways, I think, reached the pinnacle that many people dream of and by way of confidence and, and sureness in yourself. What advice would you have, then, for somebody who is maybe the sim of 8th grade or call it ninth grade, who, who isn't sure what direction they're going but is sure of one thing, and that's that they want to be self-assured in whatever it is that they believe in, whatever it is that they, they bring to the fore. What would you tell them, you know, habits or practices or just even mindsets? Uh, to help them get there. So just to clarify the question, it's how would I advise someone to develop right. that sort of self-assurance in themselves? Right. So this is tough, but I, I would say spend uh, three weeks by yourself. Uh, yeah, 21 days. And minimal access to the outside world. Like, yeah, maybe have your phones and a few texts here and there. But just spend 21 days of essentially limited technology sitting there and just questioning who am i what am i what do i want and by going you you, you may not even get the answers to those questions and that's not the issue or uh, even the, the the goal rather um but by embarking on that line of thinking you start to become very attuned with yourself in terms of i may not know specifically what i want right now or who i want to be right now but an idea of what I look forward to or what I'm trying to emulate and become. I would say that's been the most impactful thing in my life where I was able to really sort of discern from that point moving forward, like, oh, this is what I value, like in, in terms of my friends, uh, kindness and loyalty, like that means more to me than anything else. Uh, what makes me happy? Spending time with the people that I love. How did I learn that? By not spending that time with them, right? The, the, these. These sort of things help you really find a baseline level of who you are. And once you know who you are, no one can ever take that from you, right? And, and sure, achievement helps build into confidence and so forth, but that doesn't define anybody, in my opinion at least. Uh, when you have self-assurance, it, it comes from within, and someone can be self-assured about anything. And I think the, the biggest thing or the foundation everyone should have is I'm very comfortable with myself. I'm okay with being misunderstood. Those two things. That not everyone's going to understand me and that's okay. But I like me. I love me. And not everyone necessarily has to understand you. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that you mention disconnecting from the outside world because I felt like this past year with my mental health journey, the, the way that I reached my first major pinnacle 
was by on some level putting the entire world on mute as much as I could. Whereas previously I'd go out on the weekends and hang out with friends or do phone calls with friends, whatever, I disconnected entirely. And it was that time alone, similar to what you were mentioning, that helped me kind of reset my mindset in a way. And so not only does I think your, your principle apply to getting in touch with yourself at a deeper level, I think it also applies in general in life when you maybe want to take a step back and reevaluate where things are now and where, what kind of person you want to become in the future. Absolutely. It's very, very wise. Time with your own thoughts is a very beautiful thing and something I, I truly believe is underrated in our generation, especially in a, in a world where where we can get instant gratification with almost anything. Just a little, every time we're on TikTok, right, just shots of dopamine going to my brain. When, when, you, when you put all that aside and you really just reflect on yourself, it opens up so many different gateways, so many pathways. Incredibly insightful. Okay, so... In discovering yourself, this relates very much to the next question I have for you, which is if you could be any character from the world of storytelling, fiction, nonfiction, movies, anime, music, it does not matter, who would you choose to be? Or rather, who would you be, not who would you choose to be? So, reflexively, I want to say Itachi. Just because Itachi from Naruto is, I think, the pinnacle of any any character of any show ever. Uh, someone who bears the the burden of the world, but does it for the better good. But so Will Ferrell is one of my favorite actors, and he has one movie where he does a serious role. It's called Stranger Than Fiction, and his character in that movie is called Harold Crick. Um, if I could be anyone, I would want to be Harold. Um, Harold's someone who it just lives his day-to-day job at the IRS, works behind an office, and all of a sudden, his life starts becoming narrated, and the narrator basically predicts everything that's going to happen to him. And the last thing the narrator predicts is that, you know, he's going to die. Harold finds his narrator, finds the book she's writing and all this stuff, reads the book, determines he likes the ending, that he wants to change nothing up. He's comfortable with sacrificing himself because, you know, he's saving other people. And I think that sort of self-sacrifice, I don't know, I, I find that noble. And so, if I could be anyone, I'd be Harold Crick from Strange Than Fiction. Though, basically, only one of the only serious Will Ferrell roles he's ever played. <laughs> but, one of, but one of the best ones, nonetheless. Correct. It's an iconic movie. Why, why is self-sacrificial nature the thing that you think would be most interesting or where your spirit lies i mean it's also fine i'll answer that question but i also want to clear like i just appreciate harold as a character like he went to give somebody flowers and instead he bought them 12 uh, a dozen of seeds of those flowers in a box like I brought you flowers, you know, like, and, and so that I also appreciate. Just thinking outside the box is very unique. But the, the, from the self-sacrifice aspect, I, I feel like that's a, a lot of medicine, right? Like people don't appreciate this, but like, yeah, I, I may wear my N95 or my gown on, but the every day being in a hospital, I'm just exposing myself to pathogens. Like, right, like I once had blood squirting in my eye during surgery. I'm like, okay, that's something I just go in and just flush out my eye with some water, and hopefully, it all turns out okay. And so I guess not to, like, I love what I do. It's phenomenal, but it, it comes with a certain amount of self-sacrifice. So I guess on that level, I just relate to it. Very, very important. I feel that you 
have that connection to your profession so deeply? I mean... Wouldn't you say? Or do you not, do you disagree? No. Because I can say for a lot, I have my own opinions and my own ties <laughs> to the profession, you know, as, as folks probably know. But for you... I, I mean, that's... You have to have a certain love for people and humanity, to, I think, to be a really successful physician. Like, if the goal was to make money, there's a million different ways to be very become very wealthy and profitable and etc. This is different in the sense that, like, oh, someone is coming to you in heart failure and you, you know, diurese them, aka, like, you know, drain fluid off them and so forth, and then you can give them some capacity of a normal life again. Like, it is... And yeah, sometimes the hours are long. It's not always fun, but it's really cool when the you know a patient tells you like, "Hey, thank you so much. Like, I really appreciate all you've done." And or if a patient gives you like a donut just because they're so excited to see you the next day, it's it, it's it's heartwarming to a certain extent. Incredibly fulfilling. Yeah, my my clients were very grateful when I charged them eight hundred dollars an hour for adding commas, guys. Just for the record, they were very grateful. Okay. Before we get into question time for you, I want to hand the microphone to you proverbially. And if there's any message that you think and that you wish the world had right now in this era of a global pandemic, upheaval politically in the United States, a lot of uncertainty, what is it that you want people to know, if anything? And it's okay if the answer is nothing. I guess it's also a two-parter. I, I monologue a lot, but uh, what I have to offer is it's okay to be unhappy or to be upset or to be sad at times in life. But I, I think the most important thing one can do with their days is pursue the things that they enjoy. Do the things that, that make you happy. And This sounds so cliche, but from everything I've seen in terms of you know, studying more to go from an A to an A plus, like that's diminishing returns, right? Like go spend that time with your friends and family, go enjoy your life. There's always more, the, the tunnel's never ending. There's always more tunnel to run. There's no light. It, like, uh, as my, my mentor once told me, I hope you enjoy uh, sprinting marathons. Turns out I don't enjoy sprinting marathons. I enjoy, yeah, neither do I, apparently. <laughs> I enjoy, you know, having these conversations with you and talking about this, that, I think, you know, find what level of success you're comfortable with, and then from there on out, just pursue whatever and like brightens your day the most. Discover what makes you happy. I I think if I gave one advice to the, to the public in in this point in time, actively discover what makes you happy, and because it's really easy to be miserable, you have to actively work on trying to be content and or happy. Well, I do think, I, I, I love that you call it almost a practice because there was this stoicism idea I read a while back that there's this idea of enough, right? And the, the person who was most satisfied was one who had this idea of what enough was because they were comparing it to a billionaire who was going to have more money than either person was going to have ever. And because they understood enough, they didn't chase the next thing. They didn't go down that rabbit hole and chase the light because they had practiced it, like you said. But it is a practice. It takes intentionality, like you said, to move against the current. Okay, here's a question for you then, Sim. Is that an American-centric thing? Do you think that's a US-centric problem? 
because of the culture here. And I mean, we are both children of immigrants, right? So we understand the narrative of grind till you make the top and the ultra competitive individualistic side of our country, right? Hard to argue that there's probably a more individualistic country out there. I would, I would imagine listeners would probably agree. I mean, no, that, that's a huge part of it. Western society is considered as more individualistic, whereas Eastern culture is considered as more communalistic, right? And so, you know, you're actually, you're 100% correct on that. Um, so I guess I want to start off by saying that, you know, there's been a few uh, psychology studies that have shown that once you hit a certain level of income, it's diminishing returns on happiness. Like once you have basically all the basic needs met, it actually starts flowing the other way that the more money you make, the, the more unhappy you become over time. Um, but I, I think... I think this is a global problem and rather, but I think it's more pronounced in American culture than it is elsewhere. I, I think other countries give more time to for people to have to themselves, but fine, here's a great example of Eastern culture, the Japanese culture, where if you're a Japanese associate or businessman, the entire culture revolves around working, much very similar to how it is here in America, if, if not more intense. And so th there are other places in the world that do function like this, but I don't think it's the best practice, right? I, I think if you have a happy employee or you have someone who's happy to show up to work, they're more productive in their limited period of time than someone who's overworked. You get more bang for your buck that way. If only we had that implemented here, but I think we're working towards it. Slowly, but I think we're getting there. Was it I mean, tech, tech companies are the biggest companies for a reason. I would argue in part because they implemented that exact thing. Allow companies to work wherever. Free meals. Google kind of, re you know, not innovated, but brought that idea to the mainstream. Absolutely. Of feeding their employees dinner and they would stay and be more productive and happier, like you said, because the employer down the street wasn't giving them dinner. So I think we're getting there is my point, right? A step in the right direction, absolutely. What was the, was it Portugal? That passed, yes. Was it was the new law? Portugal passed? passed a law that does not allow, by law, employers to contact their employees after certain hours of certain days in an effort to adi like adequately carve out and protect mental health of folks in Portugal. And, and so, not to put this back on you, but I imagine being like I'm on call right maybe once a week, twice a week, whatever. As a medical student, will be maybe a little bit more on a, as a resident, but you're on call twenty four seven essentially. As a lawyer. Yes. You mean? Yeah. yeah well, in, in the high-pressure job that I had specifically, in some ways, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Year-round, too. Right. So with the two to three weeks of vacation. Right. And so to me, that's... Weekends that, as well. That's asinine, right? So then... To, right, to, I would to, agree with you. To wake up every morning and to have a work email present, like, oh, you have to go take... You, you're just... You're always on the clock. I agree. You can never mentally check out. Yes. In, in, in that way, the on-call, white-collar jobs are worse than medicine. Because like you said, when you're on call, you know when you're on call. When you're off work, you're off work. But in these ultra-competitive white-collar realms, you're never off. Because the client or the salesperson or whoever it is that you are servicing, that's your value add, right? Because the actual work, there's not really a ton of value add there. So the value add, in my opinion, at these most prestigious firms is the availability factor, right? We're going to get it to them. When they emailed us to 8 p.m., we can get it to them at 8.30 even though the job doesn't need to be done for two days, right? They can email back at 8.30 faster than the slower people can, and therefore they're the better attorneys. Mm -hmm. That's the perception. Is they're better lawyers, so that you're willing to pay more for them, even though functionally you don't need <laughs> to be online 
Which does not help, I might add, so with, the, with the mental health aspect. You, you pay for a premium to have 24-7 law access is what you're saying. Pretty much. And the mm-hmm. people who you actually have access to are these, call it 28 to 34-year-old junior to mid-level associates who are the gatekeepers for some part of client work and who are also trying to just navigate their 20s or their 30s and just live their life. And in some ways, check out, yeah, at least like a couple of times a year, if if not more than that. So it's not a great, I think, I think it doesn't set up people in our profession very well. I'll put it that way. Because as lawyers, there's a lot of different avenues you could take. But this being the first stop, it's not optimal for the profession as a whole, I would argue. But we have changing practices in our field too. And also, you don't need to practice big law. No one's forcing us, right? Like, you do do it primarily for the money. And the money is good. Great. Yeah, thank you. I was saying great is a Well, compare it to how it used to be with, without tech companies. It was stellar, right? right. Okay, but with tech companies now, I tell kids all the time, law is not what it used to be lucratively, sir, financially. Sir, I pay $200 a day for the honor and privilege to learn. Well, and I pay probably 300 a day at, at HLS, so uh-huh. <laughs> you and I are there on the same team. Okay. Uh, the last segment of our show, I want to give Sim the microphone, and originally I had this idea where... Every time somebody comes on the show, they're going to get to ask me one question. But as we're having this conversation, I feel like it'd be more interesting if instead I just give you, let's say, three minutes of time to be the interviewer. And let's turn it around. Whatever you would like, you can ask me. And it goes for three minutes. So you can ask me basic questions. You have to be complicated ones. But three minutes of time. Let's test that out and see how it goes. Oh, that's kind of exciting. This is... a. Uh... Quite the sword you let me wield here. There's there's so many questions I could ask. Um, okay, uh, I'm gonna start micro and then expand to macro. But I'll never forget the time we uh, we went to dinner. We grabbed sushi, and I hadn't seen you in a couple of months. And you had just entered big law. You were like six months in, and I had never seen you so angsty or upset, and so kind of agitated the world that I'd ever seen in that moment. And I looked at you point blank. I'm like, Julian, what is, what has this firm done to you? Like, why are you so angry and upset? And I was looking back at that now. What would you say was causing you to be sort of so in, in, in so much inner turmoil at that time? Yeah, honestly. So it's funny you mention that because I, as much as I want to blame the law firm, and I do, I feel like a lot of my dissatisfaction at that point in time was my dissatisfaction with the system itself. Okay. I felt like the system that I believed in, that I felt I could aspire and earn and reap the benefits therefrom, arguably, was just really letting me down. It was letting me down in the sense that it showed me that being a lawyer doesn't actually mean that you're doing anything technical. It means that you went through a gatekeeping mechanism and took all these exams, and that's basically it. Bummed that the money was nowhere near what was at one point lucrative. And that's okay. Times change. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. And of course disappointed because I was never off work, so my mental health was just constantly leaving me less happy period so it was easier for me to be disappointed in general so it was a combination of all three but i can't blame the law firm that's that's what i want to re-emphasize it was not just the law firm for me it was very multifactorial no, I, I can hear that so then let's fast forward a couple of years and you know you're doing the commute you know from uh san jose or uh where were you 
at the time where you were living when you were driving from Sacramento to... Mountain View. Oh, you're Mountain View. To Sacramento. Sacramento. That's right. And you were doing that commute for a while. And then you finally realized, hey, being apart from my partner is, you know, making me feel unhappy and upset towards the world. How did you come to that conclusion? Or how did you realize that about yourself? Oh, it just took time. It took time for me to accept the trade-offs that I felt I was making in my career to some extent from a risk perspective. Because working... Right, because working remote at the time, this was pre-pandemic, was basically not... It was kind of a hush-hush at every law firm. It had never been done, really. I was one of the first people that they eventually did approve to work remote. I was the most junior person at Wilson to ever have been allowed to work remote formally. It didn't matter in the end because COVID hit two weeks later and now everyone does it, which is great. But at the time, working remote was not a normal thing. And so when I pushed to work remote, it was more than just what it is now. It was a bigger career switch. There was potentially some career implications of me working remote. But I completely agree with that. But my question is, how did you realize that being away from your partner was the thing that was, you know, uh, hurting your spirit or making you upset at the time? Oh, I think it just, you negotiate your time, right? You think about what in my day gives me the most value per minute, per second. Right? And what does value mean then? Value is subjective. Okay. Right? It's for diff- you it it's, is. It, no, I think it's different for everybody. I think value is generally different for some people value their work a lot. Some people value time with, but ultimately everyone wants fulfillment. Ah, so fulfillment. Yeah, equals value. I mean, sure, di- you know, tomato, tomato, to me, value and fulfillment are one and the same. Um, okay, and so how do you discover that, though? That's three minutes, and thanks for your questions. They were wonderful. No, 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 no stop. No, actually, no, <laughs> this one's the last one. I have, I have two really good ones. Uh, one more after. And we'll do that in after time for folks that want to listen. Sim, it was great having you on the show. I wish I felt the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Stick around for overtime, but that's all from us. Much love. The thing that struck me the most talking to Sim was how I could naturally tell he was so gravitated towards his profession and the practice of medicine, not just because he loves helping other people, but because his personality thrives in connecting with his patients on a personal human level. And that's something that, as his friend, I've always seen him do over the years. It was also a gentle reminder hearing about his own personal experiences with the, in some ways, dire need that the medical system has for mental health resources, just how real and how seriously we need to be taking this problem to protect those who are there to protect us. And I'm talking about the entire medical profession when I say that. It makes me think of a good friend of mine who has been a practicing physician for a very long time and who told me that during the pandemic, it was the first time they had ever broken down into tears in the middle of their walk to work in the city in which they work because they were so emotionally overwhelmed and drained by the height of the pandemic. This was back in April of 2020. That's just one example of one person that I have personally met. If you know someone in the medical community, a student, a nurse, even your own doctor, take a second, ask them how they're doing, and really ask. I'm sure they would appreciate it. Who knows how many others are out there. That's all from us at Let's Be Real today. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, you guys know where to find me. The Discord link for our community, if you want a direct line, is in the bio to this podcast. 
as is the link to my TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, anywhere else. Please let us know if you have any thoughts or feedback. And if you want to be featured on the show, slide into our Discord DMs and we'll see what we can do. Thank you guys again for tuning in. Now, as promised, here's some overtime with me and Sim. Julian, how did you discern or discover about yourself that what was making you unhappy during your time in big law was being away from your partner? Like, what led you to that realization? Like, the the commute or the separation was was causing you. To oh, know? just the, the the how much of a future I could see myself doing it. Could I see a future doing it? Yes or no? No. Not to the extent I was doing it. So I decided I'm going to try to take action to change it. That's all. So you, you acknowledge a point of sort of um, unhappiness was yeah. stemming from this. Right. And how do you draw that parallel is my question. How do you draw that connection? I mean, how does one... I mean, it's a complicated... How does one feel? It right. just it just comes at a certain point in time. So I feel a lot of things on a daily basis, but I don't necessarily find an uh, underlying trigger. And so what I'm trying to get at is to elucidate maybe the thought process or understanding because my, my next question as a whole is going to be taking a step back i mean the best times <laughs> on the were on the weekends when i saw cat the worst times in general when i felt the most alone and when i felt the most hopeless were without cat i'm like there's definitely an association there <laughs> and, and <laughs> that's you, a one for one perfect so we're sending and you did. remote and i did yeah and i mean and then and then th- you know covid changed it to be clear but yeah it worked at the time and honestly it was a low-key big deal at the time because no one had ever else had it approved as a first... Well, I had been there 14 months at the law firm. And I was asking them to let me work. That's a lot of trust for an old school profession like law, right? Of course, now everyone realizes, uh, you could do this on the laptop from anywhere. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Are you paying attention? Obviously, you can. That's why I never had an issue with it. But I didn't know if these firms were smart enough. Because truthfully, I don't think they are. But they were. And I was really happy about it. And it's... A sign to me of where the more progressive folk in the profession are. Absolutely. And I think being based in Silicon Valley also kind of bled into that as well. But I find as a final question, I'll make this brief, just taking a big, big step backwards. In your life, how have you discovered the things that make you unhappy? And how have you discovered the things that do make you happy? And what steps led, to, led you to both? Yeah, it's an iterative process. And what does iterative mean? It's you, you, take, you take experiments and you test different variables. You, you try this and then see how it goes. And then you try something else, see how that goes. And over time, you develop a layer of habits. And on top of the habits, then broader patterns. And on top of broader patterns, I don't know. Okay, so let me just bring this back in. Sure. How do you discover <laughs> that work was a thing that was making you unhappy? Oh, well, it wasn't necessarily work. That's the problem. It was the geography. It was what work required, which okay. at the time was a geographic location away from Cat. So once you're, you know, you're back home, you're working at home and so forth, right. you're still unhappy. How do you discover that you're still unhappy? When I was home, well, that took time. And explain that process. I mean, I think during the pandemic, the isolation for the first eight weeks was okay and generally positive. For most people, I feel not just... In, in big law, but in the working world, in the U.S. It was a break. In some ways, yeah. Right, it was fun. Right, it was, there was some togetherness element to it. Mm-hmm. It went away, I would argue, two to three months later, at least for me, the way that I viewed the world as a white-collar professional. And that, that level of isolation isn't healthy, frankly, just for anybody. So that took its toll, while the job, of course, like we discussed earlier in the show, was not 
rearing its head, or rather, <laughs> continue to rear its head very violently at that. It's not a great mix to have home and work mixed like that with 24-7 plus the isolation. It's a recipe for disaster, one would argue. Could uh, argue. I mean, I have talked to a lot of people in tech, people who work in Facebook, Google, have talked to people who are in private equity and investment banking who have described that working at home has been one of the most toxic things for them. Yeah. Because what had become their sort of like sanctuary, like their time away from work, is now essentially their bed is 25 feet away from where they're going to be working for the rest of the day. And muddling those lines has made them more miserable than ever before. And I think that in a huge way has led to the Great Resignation. Um, but that's a whole other topic we can, we can harp on at a different time. I guess my, the final thing I want to ask you is beyond discovering that, you know, these are things that made you unhappy at Big Law, as a whole, what has facilitated you in discovering the things that do make you happy in your life? What things did you do or what influence have played a part in you finding the things that satiate your soul? I would argue the same exact process. Iterative testing. Trying different things. <laughs> Trial and error. Trial and error. How are you ever going to know if you don't? You're the most unscientistic scientist I know, bro. <laughs> well, well, I am a jurist doctor, so there is a doctor. You know, there are some lawyers that call themselves doctors. Let's not forget. It's very keen that we not lose sight of that fact. Okay. We're doctors too, big boy. This guy thinks he's a doctor just because it's a medical degree. No, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I, I based on the fact that you had a BA versus a BS. I didn't know if you knew something <laughs> or not. That's true. I do have a BA. That's it for overtime. Thanks, guys.